Psalm 72, if you'll turn there with me as we continue our journey through the book of Psalms together. Psalm 72, we are told at the beginning of it, is a psalm of Solomon, uh, who, of course, we know was the son of King David and who took over as the next king after David. So the third king uh, in the nation of Israel, of course, Saul was the first king. He was the people's choice. Uh, And again, remember, Saul came to the throne really sadly because of the fact that God's people, the nation of Israel, didn't want a theocracy. That is, they they didn't want God ruling over them. They wanted to be like the other nations and adopt the patterns of the world. And they wanted a human and earthly king. And in essence, uh, God gave them their way. God said, if that's what you want. Uh, I will grant you your wish. I will allow someone to rule over you uh, like whom you want to rule over you. And of course, remember, Saul was someone who was head and shoulders above all the rest. But God cautioned them, if this is who you want to rule over you, that's going to come attached with it some consequences. Uh, But God gave the people what they wanted. I think we always need to remember that in every election. Sometimes people, we even as Christians, you know, we vote according to our convictions and, uh, you know, biblical uh, values. And then sometimes it doesn't turn out the way we expect. And then all the Christians get upset every four years or eight years. What happened? What happened? Well, God gave the nation what they wanted. And sometimes in a free nation, that's what God does. God, okay, that's what you want. I'll give you what you want and, and try that out for a few years or try that out for a season. And, and so God has the prerogative to do that as he's the king of all the universe. And at times he will allow that to come to pass. And of course, uh, ultimately, uh, Saul failed. David took over the throne as God raised up David, who was a shepherd king, a man after his own heart. But then as David's reign came to an end, interesting, the next king that came upon Israel's throne was Solomon, who was a very unlikely selection Because he came from, if you remember, one of the greater failures in David's life, having uh, got into an adulterous affair with Bathsheba. And Solomon was the son of Bathsheba. Now, one of David's uh, other uh, wives who he had children through uh, tried to push Adonijah to the throne, but Adonijah was not God's choice. By the grace of God, God had selected Solomon and chosen Solomon to be the king. And ultimately, David recognized the calling of the Lord rather than what seemed to be the cultural preference. And and so David wisely recognized Solomon was his successor. And in embracing that for a season of time, Solomon kind of reigned, if you remember in our study, quite a ways back now when we were there in the Old Testament, Solomon was kind of like co-reigning with David as David's latter years were coming to an end. It was a very good pattern, really, uh, this idea of kind of the older generation moving off the throne and the younger generation moving in. And it wasn't this abrupt transition for a time. David allows Solomon, it seems to sort of for a season, kind of be like a co-regent with him. And they kind of reigned together for a time, and David was still, it seems, taking the predominant lead, but he was developing and preparing Solomon as the younger successor to ultimately take over for him. But you can imagine that when David died, that was quite a perplexing time for Solomon. And it's one thing to, uh, you know, be able to co-reign with your father, this incredible king that David was. Uh, It's a whole other thing to have all the pressure and the responsibility on your own shoulders, Uh, And it's very likely that this psalm was given to us after David has died. Solomon perhaps is new in his reign and he's longing for wisdom. He wants to do a quality job. He wants to reign well. Remember Solomon when he was asked by God to give to God really in a sense what his one wish was. Remember what Solomon asked for. He asked for what? Wisdom. He said, I'm a young and an inexperienced person and these are your people, Lord, and I don't know how to rule them. I don't know how to guide them. Please give me wisdom because I don't want to rule wrongly. I don't want to mistreat your people and, and, and lead them in a wrong direction. So it seems, again, that Solomon could be writing some of these things, wanting God to help him as he rules over the people. Now, let me just say this as we go into it. Psalm 72, you'll see that a number of the things that are stated in here are things that could not have been fulfilled and were not fulfilled through Solomon's reign. And for that reason, it becomes a very messianic psalm in the sense that ultimately some of the statements that are in here clearly as the spirit of the Lord is speaking through these things 
are things that are speaking further out from Solomon's reign to ultimately the one who the Bible refers to as a king greater than Solomon, referring to King Jesus, our Lord Jesus himself. And so Solomon's reign is certainly being described in some ways here, but also it's speaking of the greater reign of the king of kings, the ultimate king, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that being in his kingdom age, when he will come back and rule and reign on this earth for a thousand years, the Bible teaches as he sets up his kingdom and reigns upon this earth. Now, Solomon's reign, when you look at it in the Old Testament, in many ways is very picturesque and illustrates the kingdom age of Jesus. David's reign pictures a lot of Jesus's first coming. He was the chosen king, but the rejected king, the humble suffering servant, and David's reign reflects Jesus in a lot of ways like that. Solomon, the next king of Israel, very much reflects more, a lot of times his reign pictures in different ways, the the second coming of Christ. When he comes back and he reigns for a thousand years, the millennium, as we call it, the kingdom age, as he establishes his kingdom upon the earth. And this psalm seems to give some inferences to that. And when we go through it, you can kind of see some of those reflections. So the psalm begins with the psalmist asking, really, for God to give him capability to rule well notice he begins by saying verse one give the king your judgments O god and your righteousness to the king's son and he will judge your people with righteousness and your poor with justice so he begins by asking by praying give to the king he says your judgments O god in other words lord i know i'm going to have to make judgments here I know I'm going to have to make determinations. That's part of leadership, right? That's part of rulership, that there were going to be different matters that were going to come before him, and he was going to have to make certain judgments of what to do, what not to do, what things to pursue, what things not to pursue, how to handle different matters that came under the uh, authority of his governing uh, powers. And so he says, look, I don't want to make my own judgments on matters, And look, that right there in and of itself is tremendous wisdom to recognize that our judgment as human beings can be wrong at times. It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you are the highest ranking person and you are the king over a nation. Still, there can be error in your judgment. That's why it is good, certainly, and why they often would put counselors around them and advisors around them. But there is no better counselor to seek than the the most wonderful counselor who's the Lord himself. He sees all things, he knows all things, and I would much rather have someone who who has, you know, a a, a prayer life and who's seeking God for guidance than someone who you can put the wisest, smartest advisors in the world around them in their cabinet as a king. That is still going to fall way short of someone who's willing to turn to the throne of God, to acknowledge the greatest king and say, you know what, I may be a human king, but you are the ultimate king, so please give me your judgments. You show me what are the right judgments and how to go about doing things. And he says, and your righteousness to the king's son. Now, interesting here, it almost seems to indicate he's recognizing himself as David's son, the king's son. So perhaps in some ways he's saying, Lord, I realize I'm just new at this. I'm the true king. Perhaps David had just passed away. I'm the king's son. But he says, Lord, please give me your judgments and give me your righteousness. Give me the ability to make right decisions and see things in a righteous way as I go about what I do. And he says, if that happens, he will then judge your people with righteousness. So if you give to me righteous thinking, then I'll be able to judge or lead your people, he says, in a righteous manner and we'll be able to treat the poor with justice. And again, the idea is recognizing, treat the poor, those who are you know, less fortunate, with fairness, with justice. And keep in mind, that's the idea of justice, is fairness, which, which means two things. It means that you, you, you don't ignore and disregard their plight, but you also don't go overboard in taking care of their plight. That, that there's a balanced judgment in regards to it. Because, see, you can err on both sides. When, when somebody is in a condition of poverty or in a hardship, you can ignore their plight and not pay attention to it. And, well, that's not loving, and that may not be just. But there are other times where people overcompensate. 
And they overcompensate for those who are in a plight or a difficult or a hard situation. And when they overcompensate, then it becomes too much of almost creating for them a, a, a victim mentality of, well, then you should always stay in that condition and we'll just give you constant handouts. That's not justice either. That's poor judgment. And God understands that. Again, remember, in, in the nation of Israel, even the poor in the land were the working poor. Even when God created ways to take care of them, remember, he would tell the people, you can go through and glean your fields. But then he'd say, only go through once and leave the excess gleanings for the poor of the land to come and to partake of what you didn't get the first time you went through and gleaned your fields. So notice what God did. God made a way to help and to assist those who were genuinely poor in the land. But guess what those who were genuinely poor in the land also had to do? They had to go out and work for it, just like the people who own the field. They had to go out and pick the field and glean the field as well. They had to do something to contribute, to take the assistance that was given to them. It wasn't God told the, those who owned the fields, hey, you go through the land glean the field once, and then a second time, go back and glean the field, put it all in a bucket, and then go deliver it to those who have nothing. God said, no, let them come out and glean your field. Let them come out and earn and, and do a little sweat and, and let them have some dignity. And God granted them dignity and provision at the same time. And see, this is the difference between just you know, irrational judgments and judging with righteousness and justice in a wise way when you seek God. He says, Lord, then I can treat the poor with justice. I can make them feel dignified and help them and care for them at the same time. He says, verse 3, the mountains will then bring peace to the people and the little hills by righteousness. Again, he's using poetic language here of someone ruling in their righteous or their rulership bringing about righteousness in the land. He says, verse four, and he will bring justice to the poor of the people and he will save the children of the needy and break in pieces the oppressor that is ruling with great strength. Now, of course, ultimately Solomon did rule in such a way with wisdom, especially in the early years of his reign, where he brought tremendous prosperity to the land and righteousness began to flourish and he began to expand the kingdom. But ultimately, no one is going to do particularly with these verses or verse four is describing better ultimately than King Jesus himself, who the Bible tells us that when he comes, it says here, he will break in pieces the oppressor. Jesus, the Bible says, will not only rule in righteousness, but it says when he comes back, he will rule with a rod of iron. The idea is that it's, it's non-negotiable. What he says goes, and, and, and it's ruling with a firmness where righteousness is the law of the land, and evil is not tolerated. It's not allowed. There's no, there's no allowance of, okay, if you want to do this or break the law or create chaos. In the days of Jesus, it will be righteousness enforced because it's what's best for everyone. And Jesus will rule in that way whereby he keeps law and order and righteousness to help save the children of the needy. And again, it will be a time of great flourishing prosperity and righteousness when Christ rules ultimately. He says, verse 5, and they shall fear you. The idea is to have the, the fear of, of the throne. But ultimately, notice it may be capitalized in your translation. I think it ultimately really should be because ultimately it's speaking of the fear of the Lord. Not just the fear of the one on the throne humanly, but the fear of the Lord himself. And the Bible tells us the fear of the Lord, what does the beginning of wisdom? That's where true wisdom begins to come from when someone has a fear of the Lord. And, and when there's a healthy fear of the Lord, a respect and a reverence for God, things go much differently in our lives. They go different in a culture, in a society. And the lack of that brings a, a moral downslide. So he says, they shall fear you, as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. Again, this is something that should never cease. He's saying that there should be an unceasing fear of the Lord. There should never be a time when there's not a healthy respect for God. When there's a respect for God, things go well. When there's a disregard and a lack of fear for God and people become brazen and evil and unrestrained in their immoral behavior, that's when problems begin to happen. So he says, they shall fear you as long as the sun and the moon endure throughout all generations. That should be the, the case, the foundation. And verse six, notice he shall come down. 
Now, the picture here, again, is someone coming down from above. So, again, this certainly can't speak of Solomon. This is speaking of someone descending, coming down from a higher elevation, certainly of Christ. He shall come down, notice he uses picturesque language, like rain upon the grass before mowing, like showers that water the earth. So, again, the picture there is one coming down from above, and their presence in their coming brings like rain and showers that water the earth, the picture there is to bring refreshment and to be life-giving, right? Today, when we sometimes get rain, oh, it's raining outside, and, and we may not care for the rain. Well, in a very arid climate, when the rains came, they deeply appreciated the rains because the rains brought refreshment, the, brain, the, the rain and the showers brought uh, you know, life-giving power to, to bring forth vegetation and fruitfulness. And so the, the psalmist uses this analogy here, he shall come, and it's going to be like rain and showers that water the earth. The idea is as his presence comes, it will bring refreshment and life-giving power to those who he comes to. And what a beautiful picture, and that is what the presence of the Lord brings the presence of the Lord, when he comes, he brings refreshing. You know, the Bible tells us in the book of Acts that times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And there is something indeed that is very refreshing and renewing and life-giving about encountering the presence of the Lord. That when the Lord comes, that when the Lord moves, when the Lord shows up, it's like showers that water the barren, dry ground. And there's refreshment and renewal that comes like satisfying water to a thirsty soul. And he says, verse 7 as well, I believe of the messianic you know, kingdom age reign of Christ. He says, and in his days, the righteous shall flourish. Again, why? Because he rules in righteousness and there'll be abundance of peace until the moon is no more. Now, if you look in passages like Isaiah chapter 2 and Isaiah chapter 11, Jeremiah 23, we, we have these different Old Testament passages that speak of how when Jesus comes, that these will be the characterizing marks of his rulership during the kingdom age when he reigns upon the earth. That there'll be, it'll be a reign of righteousness. It'll be a reign of, of peace and abundance and prosperity. And so here, as he says in verse 7, in his days, that in the days when Jesus comes and he's reigning on this earth once again in the flesh, setting up his kingdom, and what a glorious day that's going to be as you and I share in that with him. Again, keep in mind the prophetic scope. The Bible teaches, in case you're new to this, the Bible teaches that the next a calendar event for you and I as believers is to be raptured or yanked or removed from this earth, that we're going to be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. The Bible tells us, 1 Thessalonians 4, that in a moment, the twinkling of an eye, the last trump will be caught up, will meet the Lord in the air, and will be with the Lord. And for a seven-year period, God will fulfill uh, th that 70th week of Daniel, as the Bible refers to it. That is, there is one more seven-year period when God will uniquely and specifically work among the nation of Israel. According to Daniel 9, there's one more seven-year period that needs to be fulfilled with them. During that time as well, we also know it is the time of the tribulation, that seven-year period when God will bring great cataclysmic judgments upon the Christ-rejecting world that is here. The Antichrist will be revealed during the three-and-a-half-year mark, right at the middle of that, and then the great tribulation, things will intensify in greater you know, difficulty, he'll turn against the nation of Israel and, and, and bring hatred towards them. And all of these things will be difficult and perplexing. And you and I will be in the presence of the Lord, kept from that as the bride, because we're not appointed to wrath because Jesus already bore our wrath. And we've accepted that and we believe that we're not going to be subjected to wrath a second time. But after that seven-year period, the Bible says then happens the second coming of Christ, Revelation 19, when you and I return back with the Lord in our glorified bodies as he comes back to then establish his kingdom upon the earth for a thousand years in his glorified reign, the kingdom age, which we're speaking about, where we will rule and reign with Christ on this earth. And in a sense, we will begin to see once again creation and creation-like environments coming back to the earth once again. 
The Old Testament passages speak of this, times where, you know, the wolf will lay down with the lamb and the child will play at the cobra's hole and, you know, things where there's no aggressiveness, there's no violence, there's no evil upon the earth because Christ is reigning and everything in creation is coming into harmony. And he says here of that reign, characterizing it, verse 7, in his days when Jesus is reigning, the righteous, notice, shall He doesn't say anything uh, of them enjoying it here, but he says what? They shall flourish. Imagine that. Right now, I think it's fair to say that living righteous doesn't necessarily reward you with flourishing. How many of you have flourished doing what's righteous at times? How many of you said, you know what? Though everyone else at my job is cheating or breaking the rules, I'm going to do what's right because I believe that's the path path to flourish here at this company. Right, But he says in the days of Jesus, when he is reigning, the righteous shall flourish. That you will flourish for doing what is righteous in the sight of the Lord. And there'll be not just peace, but an abundance of peace. The, the land will be characterized by peace because the prince of peace will be reigning. Man, how wonderful those days are going to be to enjoy. In verse 8, he then describes the extent of his reign. He shall have dominion. Also notice from sea to sea. Now, again, this certainly Solomon's reign expanded, but it did not expand this far. So this is speaking of something beyond the reign of Solomon. He shall have dominion or rulership from sea to sea, from river to the ends of the earth. Those who dwell in the wilderness, it says, will bow before him, coming and being subject to him, coming to his throne to bow before him. His enemies will lick the dust. The idea is they will bow down uh, and and cower before him, acknowledging uh, their submission. And his enemies, he says, will lick the dust. Verse 10, the kings of Tarshish. Now, that was the furthest westward point that they knew in that day, somewhere around the area of Spain. That was about as far west as they knew going west, the area of Tarshish, and of the isles, and we'll notice they will come and bring presents, that is, to this one reigning. The kings of Sheba, now that would speak of southern Arabia, as well as of Seba, of Ethiopia, will come and offer gifts. Verse 11, yes, he says, all kings shall fall down before him, and all nations shall serve him. So he's describing here really the extensiveness of the reign of this king. That people from all over, from the west to the east, to the north, to the south, all coming to where this king is and coming to submit themselves to his rulership, to acknowledge humbly his rulership over them. And more than that, to come and to honor. It says they will come, these different kings, and offer gifts to him and presents to honor and to worship him. And of course, this speaks of exactly what you know, Paul talks about, even in the book of Philippians, where he says that there is coming a day, right? The Bible says, where every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. And there is coming a time when not just all peoples, but he says kings, that is the strong, the rulers of all nations will come submitting themselves to the rulership of Christ, acknowledging him, worshiping him, bringing presence to him for the great glory that he possesses as king. Verse 12, it says, for he will deliver the needy when he cries, the poor also and him who has no helper. He will spare the poor and needy. He will save the souls of the needy and redeem their life from oppression and violence and precious shall be their blood in his sight. Again, one of the the characterizing marks of poor rulership is a lack of compassion. And a lack of genuine care for people and mistreating people. And, and so those who are vulnerable are oppressed. Those who are in more difficult situations are ignored and overlooked and not properly cared for. And one of the characterizing marks of, of a good king, of good rulership and leadership, is compassion, right? And righteousness. And doing what's right to help those who are in trouble. And here he speaks of the rulership of this king providing assistance and deliverance, notice, to the needy to the poor, to the one who he says has no helper, to those not only who are stuck in difficult times, but he says from those who are in a place of oppression, who are being mistreated with violence 
And he says, precious are they in his sight, so therefore he will deliver them and spare them and help them and save them. And certainly this speaks of how Jesus will have a characterizing mark of compassion to his rulership in his kingdom age. But, you know, when I look at verses 12 through 14, I can't help but to think as well how that is a very fitting picture as well, spiritually, of even how Jesus deals with our souls right now. Not just needy and poor and, and having no help in the sense of, of physical circumstances, you know, but the Bible speaks that we, in a sense, are in a condition of poverty spiritually, does it not? Remember Jesus says in, in Matthew chapter 5 when he's speaking what we refer to as the Beatitudes, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit. That is not poor financially or circumstantially, but the idea is poor in your inward condition. He's speaking of a poverty of the soul, that someone is in a needy condition, and every person, truly, that is the genuine condition from God's perspective we're all in. We are poor inwardly. We are in a poverty-like condition before God because of our own sinfulness. And, And I love, as I look at this, isn't that a fitting description of our soul? We are needy, broken, sinful people. We are those who are poor in spirit. We have nothing to bring to God, and we we have no helper. There is no human person that's going to help us in our spiritual condition. We can't help ourselves. No one else is going to help us, but, but how wonderful he, the Lord, he delivers the needy soul. He delivers us in our poor condition, and when we have no helper, Verse 13 says, he will spare. Isn't that what he's done for us through our salvation in Jesus? He spared us. He spared us as the poor and the needy spiritually, and he will save the souls of the needy. Notice, save the souls. He's not talking about saving them physically, saving their souls, because that's what matters most to King Jesus, is saving people's souls, because that's what eternal, right? Jesus himself said, what does it profit man if he gains the whole world? and forfeits their soul. See, that's why it is so important whenever we do ministry to those who are even are less fortunate. You know, when we uh, go on, you know, a missions trip or we do, you know, ministry to those who are poor or less fortunate to recognize that, yes, it is wonderful to show love and help and assistance, but the bottom line is, is if you are not doing something to reach a person's soul, uh, you're never going to typically rectify their circumstantial condition. You know, I, I've been to places before, some of you have as well. You go to countries where, I mean, you are talking, you know, genuine, severe poverty. And there is no way you're going to resolve that poverty. But what you can do is you can speak the gospel to them and spare and save and help to deliver their soul so that even if the rest of their life they struggle in poverty, they can one day be spared from that struggle and experience a glorious kingdom where they'll live like a king's kid for all of eternity. And see, that's the greatest gift you can give to them. Not to necessarily try and fix their temporal circumstances, but give them eternal assurance that one day they can be delivered from all of that and experience a glorious kingdom by having their soul saved. In verse 15, he says, he shall live and the gold of Sheba will be given to him. Prayer also will be made for him continually, and daily he shall be praised. So again, prayer being made for the king, for Solomon, no doubt, that he would reign well. Daily he shall be praised, honored, and acknowledged. And there, verse 16, he says, will be an abundance of grain in the earth, on the top of the mountains. Its fruit shall wave like Lebanon, and those of the city shall flourish like the grass he says, of the earth. Here speaking of prosperity under his reign. And if you look at the reign of Solomon, even greater than David's, it was a reign where there was tremendous prosperity. Remember, it says that in the days of Solomon that, that he made silver as common as rocks. And if you go over to the area of Israel, I've been there before, there's a lot of rocks in that land. <laughs> and the Bible says that in Solomon's reign, it was so much prosperity silver was as common in the land as all the rocks that were laying around. So a time of tremendous abundance and prosperity. And look, under the reign of Christ, it will be a reign of tremendous prosperity to even much greater than the reign of Solomon. And verse 17 says, And his name shall endure forever. His name shall continue as long as the sun, and men shall be blessed in him. 
and all nations shall call him blessed. Now, certainly Solomon has a degree of recognition, but verse 17 doesn't speak of something that's true of Solomon. Solomon is not going to have his name endure forever as long as the son, Jesus' name, is the one name that endures forever and will be worshipped forever and will last forever And only ultimately, in the greatest sense, verse 17 says, all men shall be blessed in him. All men aren't blessed in Solomon, but all men can be blessed in, that is in relationship with Jesus. Because if you are in Christ, then you are righteous and forgiven and you're in right relationship with God. And to be in Christ relationally, spiritually, positionally, that's a blessed life. You have the blessed assurance of salvation and you get to experience a tremendously blessed life by simply being in relationship with the right king, having Jesus reign over your life. So he says, all men shall be blessed in him and all nations one day shall call our Lord blessed. Verse 18, he concludes with a, a, again, a, a offering of worship once again. And blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who only does wondrous things. Boy, isn't that a a great compliment to our Lord. He only does wondrous or wonderful things that when he works, it's always wonderful, the things that he does. And blessed be his glorious name forever. Let the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen and amen, or let it be so and so be it. And then verse 20, it seems this is kind of the conclusion of the, he says, the prayers of the son of David, of Jesse, David, son of Jesse, are ended. Now, that little epitaph there doesn't necessarily speak of that David is no longer going to give us any more psalms or prayers, because as we go on in our study in the book of Psalms, we'll see more writings from David. It seems that he's referring to the prayers or the writings of David are ended as far as you notice that as you begin Psalm 73, it says there, book three, Psalms 73 to 89. Remember, the book of Psalms is broken into five volumes if you would five different books so this seems to be a reference this is the end of the second collection of books uh, within this five volume collection of the psalm psalm 73 is a psalm written by asaph we're told and remember asaph was a chief worship leader in the nation of israel he was a levite Uh, And he was a chief worship leader. That is, he was someone who led other musicians and other worship leaders. And he writes this psalm, and the crux of this psalm really, if you're familiar with it, it's probably one of the more familiar psalms. Uh, A lot of times we talk about why do uh, bad things happen to good people, right? We hear that. Why do bad things happen to good people? Well, here, Asaph says, I have a bigger problem. Not why do bad things happen at times to good people. He here says, why do good things happen to bad people? Why is that right? Why should anything good happen to people who are doing things bad? And this is his bigger thing that's perplexing him. He's not concerned about why do bad things sometimes happen to good people. Anybody who knows the word of God ultimately reconciles the reality. We live in a fallen, broken, sinful world. Bad things are always going to keep happening. Until Jesus comes. His bigger perplexity is he's struggling with angst within. Why do good things seem to happen on this earth to really wicked and bad people? Why should they be rewarded with any enjoyment or blessing? And this is his quandary. But notice he begins the psalm by saying, Truly, God is good to Israel, to such as are pure in art. He begins the psalm in the right way with a declaration of a proper understanding, that's simply this, verse one, that God is good to his people. God is good to his people. Regardless of what's happening in the world and the struggles we have with reconciling this and how come that's like that and I don't always understand what's unfolding in my life and and we can't always answer every question and put the pieces together, but look, that one fundamental fact right there really can help get you through some stuff. That God is good to his people. That he is always good to his people. In fact, some translations render the Hebrew, only good is God to Israel. The idea is the only thing God is and the only thing God can be is good. That's all he can do. He can only be good. 
And how wonderful to have that assurance that as his people, that we can know that only good is what God does for us ultimately to such as are pure in heart, that his hearts are clean before him. But he says, verse two, now describing his, his angst and frustration, here's a struggle. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. He says, I, I had almost began to really slip and stumble in my spiritual walk. My feet had almost tripped me up, he says. My steps had nearly slipped. Why, verse three? For I was, this is called honesty. Aren't you glad the, the, the writers under the spirit of God were honest? Again, God doesn't, I, this is what I love about the word of God. God doesn't clean up his word. You know, one of the ways I know the word of God on top of many other reasons is the word of God is because if God wanted to, he could have really polished up the scripture and made everybody a hero, made everybody perfect, everybody like a spiritual superhero. And instead, God presents people very raw, real, even the greatest of men, your Davids and your Moses. He shows us their flaws and their weaknesses and their failures and their shortcomings, right? Because if not, we would read the word of God and go, I'm not like that. I, don't, I can't relate to that. But we read the word of God, and particularly as we read the book of Psalms, as we've been seeing, right, all these ranges of emotion, and we read, oh, man, yeah, wow, I feel like that sometimes. You mean I'm normal? That's exactly what I struggle with sometimes. You know, maybe there have been times in your life, maybe even right now, where you feel like that you're kind of stumbling a little bit in your mind or in your emotions or your thinking because of maybe what's going on in your life or what you're saying. Yeah, I, I kind of feel like I'm slipping right now. I feel like I'm kind of almost stumbling a little bit as I'm trying to process something. Well, here's what he was stumbling over. He says, I was envious of the boastful when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. So he saw the wicked and he saw the wicked doing well. And that was bothering him. And he said, wait a minute. I'm trying to do what's good and be pure in heart and keep a clean life before the Lord. And then I look over here at the other guy on the job site. And he says, I'm over here just trying to honor the Lord and do my thing and keep my heart pure and do what's good and righteous in the sight of the Lord. And man, I'm just struggling to keep my head above water sometimes. And then here's this other guy, you know, just a little bit, you know, a few feet away from me and he's doing the same job and he's cussing all day long and using profanity and talking about getting drunk last weekend and, you know, doing this and that. And, and, and he's making twice as much as I am. And he's also telling me about all these cars he's buying and this and that. And he seems like he's prospering and getting ahead. And here I am. Why is he prospering? He's wicked, man. It doesn't make sense, right? If God is good, how can... And so the psalmist says, I was struggling. And he says, it wasn't just that he was prospering. Notice he says, he was boastful about it. <laughs> he was bragging about it. Oh, man, I really, I got a load on this week. And I was, I was doing this. And, and, and he's bragging about all the stuff that he's doing evil at the same time. He's describing, you know, his newest purchases and, oh, I just bought this brand new such and such this week. And, and he's boasting and bragging and you're having to listen to. It. And he says, man, I was really starting to, to get not just jealous, but notice the word envious. Jealousy is when you want something someone else has. Envy is a much stronger word in the Bible. Envy speaks of not just wanting what someone else has, but actually being angry that they possess it and you don't. It's a whole nother level. Jealous is just, man, I wish I had what you had. Envy is, man, it really angers me that you have that and I don't. That's envy. And he says, I was becoming envious of this boastful, wicked person prospering. For there are no pangs. Now he seems to describe in poetic language here some of what his frustrations are. There are no pangs. The idea is sufferings. They don't seem to die in a painful way. It seems like they just slip into death in their sleep. There are no pangs in their death. But their strength is firm. Seems like they're strong and stable. They are not in trouble as other men, nor are they plagued like other men. Seems like that they often don't have struggles, that life goes well for them. They're not dealing with different plagues and problems that those of us are who are trying to serve God. Therefore, pride serves as their necklace. They're just proud of their evil way and how great they're doing. Violence covers them like a garment. Their eyes bulge with abundance and they have more, look at this, more than their heart could wish. They have more than they could even ask for. And they scoff and speak wickedly concerning oppression. They mock what's good and right, the ideas. They speak loftily, bragging in their pride. They set their mouth against the heavens and their tongue walks 
through the earth. That is, they're, they're, they're mocking and scorning what's good and right. Again, speaking irreverently about God and bragging about their evil behavior. Therefore, he says, verse 10, his people return here and waters of a full cup are drained by them. And they say, how does God know? Or where is the knowledge in the most high? In other words, they're saying, you know, God, how could God know what's going on in my life? I mean, you really think that stuff's real? I mean, if it's so real, then how come you're having a hard time and I'm doing so good? If God's real, then how come you read your Bible and say your prayers and go to that church and I make more than you do? I drive a nicer car than you do. I got the advancement and the raise and you didn't. <laughs> and, 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 and they, you know, kind of in a mockery continue to, well, so much is your God. And, and again, that you're, it's all this frustrating experience of them verbally mocking God and kind of acting as if God's not real and God doesn't really know. He says, verse 12, behold, these are the ungodly who are always at ease. They increase in riches. Surely I have cleansed my heart in vain, he says, and washed my hands in innocence for all day long. I've been plagued and chastened every morning. So, I mean, he's really struggling here. He says, I look around at others and it seems like that they're doing well. It seems they're increasing in riches. Seems like their life is a life of ease. And again, but keep in mind, what's the psalmist seeing? Only what's on the surface. He has no idea what's going on when they put their head down on their pillow at night, that they're empty, that their marriages are a mess behind closed doors, that they're drinking their sorrows away. And again, is, is, but he's seeing on the surface, and sometimes this happens. And right, is there always an explanation for it? There's not. You know, how does it make sense, right, that, that someone who loves the Lord and serves the Lord and they're not only walking with Jesus, but maybe they're letting their life be useful to do ministry and they're really serving the Lord. And that's the person who gets cancer at an early age. And then here's someone else, right? And, and, and they're, they're just wicked and evil and rude and mean to everyone, and mistreat their family. They don't even care about their children. And, and, and they're just living a completely wicked, self-serving life. And they're the person that seems like that they got good health, and things are always going great, and they're prospering in their job, and they're making money hand over fist, and we're going, this doesn't make sense. Why, why? But again, what's part of the problem in that? Our value system. What really holds value? Is it just health and money and prosperity? Is that really what matters most? If it is, then maybe this is why we get envious and struggle. But if we realize, no, maybe the bigger value system is things like peace, good relationships, a clean conscience, hope. All of a sudden, we realize, oh, Maybe that's what it is. It's a value. But again, we struggle like this. And as he struggled, notice he says, verse 13, I feel like I've cleansed my heart in vain and washed my hands. And he says, I feel like I'm leaving a clean life. And I just, and again, you can picture the devil just turning the, turning the screwdriver in, in, in his heart. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you're, you're living a clean life. How, what, what's that doing for you any different than this guy? That's all in vain, man. You're doing that all in vain. And again, the devil tries to discourage and manipulate us in this way. Look what he says, verse 15. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, in other words, if I had uttered this, behold, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. So he says, if I would have articulated this, now, of course, ultimately he did, but in a psalm. But he said, if I would have let myself, when I was struggling like this, emotionally and mentally, the psalmist here, Asaph says, if I would have went around and spoken in this way that I'm now disclosing in the psalm, he says that the downside of that is he said, I would have been untrue to the next generation. I would have given bad testimony for you, God. I, I, I would have said some things that maybe I shouldn't have been saying that made you not look too good. So sometimes, look, when we're struggling, there's a time to speak and there's a time to be silent. And especially when we're seeking to be a witness before other people around us. You know, we start giving bad advertising for God. Why is that wicked person ever going to be interested in serving God? We have to be careful sometimes. Even when we're stumbling and struggling, maybe mentally or emotionally in some way, he says, I would have been untrue to the generation of your children. So he said, when I thought about this, notice it was hard to understand this. And sometimes it is. Isn't that a true statement? 
hard to understand. He says, it was too painful for me. In other words, it was, it was hurting me just trying to put this together in my mind. Verse 17, here's the transition. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I understood their end, he says. Surely you have set them in a slippery place. You have cast them down to destruction. Oh, how they brought to desolation as in a moment, that is in a moment, everything can be destroyed in their life, he says, because of the way they're living. They are utterly consumed with terrors. As a dream when one awakes, so, Lord, when you awake, that is, you awake to judge, you shall despise their image. So the psalmist says, you know, as I thought this through, he says, I couldn't understand. He says, but then I went into the house of the Lord. And he says, when I went into the house of the Lord, finally, I got a right perspective again. I was stumbling. I was struggling. I was stumbling. I was struggling. And what happened? He said, the problem was my perspective was getting off. But he says, when I went into the sanctuary of God, when I went into the house of the Lord, and I was in the place where the people of the Lord are gathering and worship of the Lord is happening and the spirit of the Lord is ministering. And the word of the Lord is speaking truth into our lives, taking out the error and giving us proper thinking and shedding light on things so that we see things from God's perspective and the right way. He says, when I went into the house of the Lord, then I understood. I understood. No, he says, I understood their what? Their end. He says, I, I saw the value system. It's not about their now. Who cares what they're doing now? It's their end. And he says, and their end is a slippery, destructive slope that is just waiting for the moment that when God wakes up, like waking up quick from a dream, and their little dream life on earth, living wickedly, is going to be an utter nightmare when they face the wrath of God. And he says, ah, now I understand. Why would I envy that? Why would I envy temporary pleasure or fulfillment or enjoyment that is going to end in utter terror and destruction of a wasted life? And he says, my perspective was renewed. Look, this is why it is so important to do exactly what you're doing this evening, to be in the house of the Lord. There are many, many benefits, but one of them is your, your perspective is often renewed. My perspective is renewed, and then we understand things correctly. See, you can leave her tonight with a way different perspective for the rest of your week or the rest of your month or whatever's going on in your life than you could if you were being home watching AGT or what, I don't know if they want to play football on Wednesday nights, whatever, anything. And you could be watching so many other things. You could be doing so many other things. But when you come into the house of the Lord, what happens? The spirit of the Lord ministers and you understand things properly and you got a different focus to live in the world with. And that helps us in our soul. It keeps us from stumbling. So he says, Lord, this is when I finally understood. It was when I went into the house of the Lord. That's why it's so invaluable for us to come into the sanctuary, the benefits that come to us. He says, thus my heart, verse 21, was grieved and I was vexed in my mind. I was torn up within. He says, look what he says, verse 22. He's almost sort of humbling and repenting before the Lord. He says, I was so foolish and ignorant. Lord, I was acting like an animal, like just a beast before you. Why was he acting like a beast? Because what do animals care about? Temporal satisfaction, immediate fulfillment, right? One of my top three decisions, top three worst decisions in my life, I got a dog. <laughs> that thing is a picture of the flesh. All it cares about is immediate fulfillment. That's all it cares about. It's just like the flesh. Disregard for everything and anyone, just immediate fulfillment, driven by its nose, driven by impulse. And he says, that's why I was acting, Lord. That's why I wasn't thinking straight. I was acting like a beast. I wasn't acting like a person created in the image of God, an eternal person. He says, Lord, I was so foolish thinking like that. Nevertheless, he says, I am continually with you. Lord, that's what matters. I'm continually with you. And you hold me by my right hand. Lord, I'm not on a slippery slope. I'm in a relationship with you, the king of kings, and you're holding my hand, leading me through this earth. He says, verse 24, and you will guide me with your counsel. I don't have to figure life out on my own. You're guiding me, Lord. How wonderful to be guided with the counsel of the Lord. And then he says, verse 24, and afterward, then you're going to receive me into glory. 
Oh, look, his perspective's coming back now. I got a guide in my life. I don't just have someone who offers me guidance. I have someone literally who is a personal, constant companion and guide. Jesus didn't just say, look, go over there. Jesus said, follow me. I'll take you to where you need to go. One thing to get guidance from somebody is much better to have somebody actually be your guide and actually walk with you. And all you got to do is follow Jesus and he will guide you with his counsel and then afterward receive you into the glory of heaven rather than the suffering of eternal torment for those who are wicked. He says, verse 25, who am I in heaven but you? And there is none upon the earth that I desire beside you. Notice his desire returned. Lord, you're my desire, not stuff not prosperity, not riches. Lord, you're the thing. I don't desire anything on this earth. You are my sole desire. My flesh and my heart may fail. That is my physical body. My health may fail, and it may, right? It does for all of us. My heart may fail at times. We grow discouraged. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Lord, I may be weak, but you are my strength You are my portion. You're what fulfills me and satisfies me more than anything or any person on this earth. That's why I desire you, Lord, because you're my portion. You're what fulfills me forever. For indeed, those who are far from you shall perish. You have destroyed all those who desert you for harlotry. The idea there is spiritual harlotry, just adulterous, turning away from the Lord, betraying the relationship. But verse 28, he concludes, it is good for me to draw near to God. I have put my trust in the Lord that I may declare, not my complaints about the wicked, I may declare, he says, all your works. I love how he concludes this Psalm, verse 28. It is good, he doesn't just say it's good, he says it's good what? For me to draw near to God. Have you noticed that? It's not just good to draw near to God, it's good for me. It does good for me. In this world, it is good for me to draw near to God. When we draw near to God, something wonderful happens because the Bible promises that if we draw near to him, he draws near to us. And so we benefit, we get the value. Though we honor the Lord, we get tremendous value as he ministers to our souls things that we need. So let's stand together, let's pray.